Welcome to a special edition of Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. You're about to listen to an episode in the 10-part Touched by Suicide series. Trigger warning, this episode may include discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance abuse, and self-harm. If these topics are sensitive to you, proceed with caution. It may also contain strong language and is intended for an adult audience. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Please be sure to share this podcast with anyone who needs to hear it right now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Touch by Suicide, a podcast series inspired by Steve Tarpinian, who died by suicide in 2015. I'm your narrator, Michael Lovato. In this series, we share perspectives from people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. Our goal is to raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding suicide and mental health issues. And to always remember, you are not alone. Today we hear the perspective of a man who attempted suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. His name is Kevin Hines. He was 17 years old when he decided to take his life. Kevin shares his story, including the fact that he regretted his decision the second his body left the rail. He openly discusses his personal mental health issues, how he has learned to live with but not act on his suicidal feelings, and how connections and love form his foundation. Today, Kevin travels the world sharing strategies for positive mental health, some of which you will hear right now. Please note, all the resources Kevin shares are listed in the show notes for future reference. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Now, let's hear from Kevin and Nicole. Hey, Kevin, I am so grateful to have you today. Um, I just want to tell you before we even start, I appreciate you so much. I missed an opportunity to hear you speak in person in Steamboat Springs last year because we had some like COVID quarantine thing with my kid. You were here in this tiny little mountain town to do what they called the longevity project. I think that's what they called it. And you were speaking about your suicide attempt. And uh, I was so bummed I missed you because when I read about what you're doing, I just, I know your message is so important. So thank you for sharing it with me today for this Touched by Suicide special podcast series. You bet. Glad to. I'm grateful for what you're doing. I want to be a part of the solution to help any way I can. Oh, and you are, I mean, you are everywhere. Um, And, and you know what, before we even get going, let's just do this right away. I want people to know where they can find you and your resources. So kick it off with that. Absolutely. So if you're looking at the screen, is this a video podcast or is it audio? Uh, mostly audio, but mostly hey, audio. we might have to throw the video up there too. Okay. Well, if you go to youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, or just go to YouTube and type in Kevin Hines, find the circle with my face on it, subscribe, hit the notification bell, click the like buttons in some of the videos. Here's why. There are 540 videos designed to help your brain feel better, to help your mental well-being. A great many of them are science-backed and evidence-informed tools to how to change your life mentally. 
there is a, a, a video on that channel, two videos on a channel I want to reference that are really good resources. One is an award-winning video by Andrew Ross and myself called the, uh, it was an instant regret. And that's the, the crux of my story in a seven minute clip, Be beautifully done, beautifully shot, um, won several uh, PSA awards uh, and went viral. And then there's uh, the video, uh, The Art of Wellness 2.0, a 10 step guide to better brain, mind, behavioral, mental health and well-being. And that those 10 steps um, are helping thousands of people around the world uh, who are saying from as far as Peru, Africa, China, Japan, all across the UK, Canada, and Ireland, that by following these 10 steps for six to nine months, they see a dramatic improvement in their mental health and well-being. Next to that, you can go to the Hindsights podcast, H-I-N-E-S-I-G-H-T-S podcast across all podcast platforms. Uh, and that podcast, uh, we have a uh, on Thursdays, we have an Ask Kev, where people from all over the internet send me messages asking me questions. I answer those questions on the Ask Kevs on Thursdays. On Friday, we have a mental health hack of the day, what you can do today to balance your mental health and add into your repertoire or your routine or your regimen to stabilize. And then, fr and then Saturday, we have an interview with a guest, uh, subject matter experts, individuals in their field that are the greatest minds in the field, uh, celebrities, uh, you, you know, social media influencers and so much more. So we tell stories of triumph over incredible adversity and we share that with the world. So there's so much to offer. Uh, year, some years back, my wife and I started a mental health media company with the idea that we realized that there's so much negative, dangerous, hurtful and hateful, spiteful media out there. Why not make some stuff that really matters, that really changes lives that we see efficacy from? From all over the world, with all of our videos, we have seen hundreds of thousands of messages from people who said these videos saved or changed lives. We don't own that, but we say that you know we, we put out the message, they went home, they did the work, they saved and changed their own lives. They just did, don't give themselves the credit they deserve. So uh, watch these videos, appreciate them, take them, share them, and send them to your greatest friends who are struggling mentally because they could benefit them immensely. Oh, I love it. And it's fun to listen to you, you know? So if you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. No, get over there. Definitely. You could start with the hindsights podcast. I love it because there's some really just quick clips and you're just fun and you've got the energy, but really the truth is you come from a place of personal knowledge about all of these issues. And that's what we're going to dig into today. Um, you know, from what I understand, you had a childhood that was far from idyllic. Maybe we can start there and you can talk about, you know, your, your youth. Yeah. Well, no, I had a great childhood. I had a terrible infancy. Um, I was born, I'm adopted. I was born to biological parents who, after they had me and my brother succumb to drugs and alcohol because of their diagnoses, both of their diagnoses of manic depression. My birth mother was triply diagnosed with manic depression, schizophrenia, and substance use disorder. And so after, after they had us, they succumbed to drugs and alcohol, um, and, and they, had to, they had to keep us under one roof. And in order to do so, they had to do score or sell drugs. So they, they, they would leave us unattended to go do those things as infants, leaving us. We could have fallen to the concrete slab floors, cracked our heads open. We could have touched the dangerous sharp metal drug paraphernalia objects on the bed that could have killed us. So many things could have happened. 
Uh, one fateful day, uh, a seedy motel clerk who was like, I'm enough hearing these kids scream and cry every day, I'm calling the police. And he did. Police come in uh, and they, they swoop us up, smelling sour and putrid of our own filth. And they place us in the foster care system. We both had distended bellies filled with liquid, bruises from the tops of our sternums to the bottom of our abdomens from being malnourished for so long. Uh, our birth parents had been feeding us for our formative months where they could steal. Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk was our first diet. So, um, you know, that, that was our, our beginning. That was my life. And we lived in severe poverty. Um, and, you know, tragically, we were in foster care with the idea that my brother and I would be adopted together. He died. Um, we both got bronchitis. He passed away. I got to live. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a first great second chance at life, but what a horrible situation to be in, losing my brother and losing my parents. Um, and I developed a severe detachment disorder from reality immediately, and abandonment issues have followed me until today. And I always say in my presentations, my keynotes, I say, every time somebody I love dies, I feel like they're leaving me on purpose and I can't shake it no matter how much therapy I do. And I do a lot of therapy, you know? Absolutely. And how old were you when your brother passed? Well, he's 10 months older than me. Um, and it's hard to determine the whole timeline because I was not cognizant of it all. Right, right. You know, I don't remember it. But as far as, young. I, as far as I know, I was in foster care for nine months. My, my parents, Pat and Debbie, adopted me at, or took me in at nine months of age. So he must have passed away when I was around four or five months old. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you became a Heinz. Let's see. Does that make sense? Because if he was born 10 months after I was born. No, I was born 10 months after he was born. He's older. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So it makes sense too, that you wouldn't remember it, but it's part of the story that, you know, is part of your history. And right. at well, that point, here's the thing. I have, I have documents from the adoption that tell me the whole, the whole story. So it, it's broken down into how destitute my birth parents were, you know, how, how much, how difficult their lives were. Their diagnosis of managed depression is in there. Their drug and alcohol use is in there. And and I, I, I'm going to tell you something that most people don't know about me. My birth parents fought for custody of me between Pat and Debbie Hines and themselves. They actually they actually went to court for two years to to keep me. Um, they they didn't give up. They weren't they they loved me dearly. They loved Jordash dearly, my birth brother. But they just couldn't take care of us properly. Um, and and you know their lives ended very tragically because of because of drugs and uh, because of mental struggles. You know, yeah, I, I did not. I did not find that in your other interviews I've listened to. And it, and I often wondered, you know, are you in touch with them? And it sounds like they're no longer here. But it, in a way, I don't know if it you would consider it a gift that you, you know, to know that they wanted you in their lives. I, I think that's oh, a pretty special thing. You know, this is interesting because I, uh, this is another story I never tell. Um, for the first 15 years of my life, I didn't know they fought for me. I thought they just abandoned me and left me. I didn't realize I was taken from them by the police. I didn't realize that in foster care, they came into the foster care office and kidnapped me and my brother for four weeks and went on the run for four weeks. 
at some point. I, I didn't realize any of this stuff. So when I was 15 and I learned all this stuff from my, from my adopted parents, my parents, Pat and Debbie, um, I, I totally forgave them. And all I wanted growing up, all I wanted as a kid was to grow up to someday find both of my birth parents, to give them a hug and to tell them I love them. That was my goal before I knew they passed away. That was my life goal. The most, the, the highest epitome of life goals. And then learning that they passed away and I missed my birth mom by about two years. That's a, that's a pretty slim margin to miss connecting with someone that, that means the world to you. Um, I always had this void in, in my stomach. I always felt something was missing that was so powerful and so uh, irreplaceable with my birth parents. And, and the best thing that came out of this, the silver lining in all of this is that I found a brother and a sister I didn't know I had. Half brother, half sister I didn't know I had. Found all my cousins on my mom's side. To be fair, my dad's side of the family shunned me and said, get the hell out of here. We don't want, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, certainly not the extended family, but when I finally found where my birth father was raised, the, the folks that were in the house were like, what, what do you, what do you want money? And I was like, no, I don't want money. I just want to get to know my biological father's family and I want to be a part of it. And he was like, and he was the, the guy that kicked, said to kick rocks was the, was the husband of one of my relatives. He wasn't even my true blood relative. And he was like, we want nothing to do with you. Get out. And that was a, that was a tough pill to swallow. That was really rough. Cause now I have no, I have no connection to my dad's family. And it's, it's very, it's very, it still remains very painful. But finding was, my birth, yeah, go ahead. That was when you were in your teens and people were closing doors in your face. That, that was in my uh, late twenties. Okay. 20s. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, but, but, but meeting my birth mother's family has been amazing. The family hails from James Bond Island, Jamaica. Okay. They, uh, a lot of them have Jamaican accents. Um, they're, they're a beautiful, very colorful, gorgeous group of people. Um, they are God fearing, um, and they are just, a uh, they're my, they're my new family slash my old family. And they accepted me immediately when I met my birth sister for the first time. Um, it was, it, it's a, it's a, it's a hilarious story. I'll tell it to you. So I, I find out that I have a half sister, right? I don't even know at this point that I have a half brother. I have, I find out I have a half sister. I get a phone number. I call this phone number and I say, hi, this is leaving a message, by the way. I say, hi, this is Kevin. My name used to be Giovanni Gabriel Prasad. I think I'm your brother. Can you please call me? Are you going to call that guy? Who's going to call that guy? No one's going to call that guy. She didn't call me for two years. She sees me on 2020 with John Stossel promoting a suicide prevention campaign. And she says, I think that's my brother because she had heard the story of the Golden Gate Bridge. And she goes and she goes back to that phone message I left years earlier and she calls the number. I still have the same number. And I'll never forget it. I was in my dad's house on Arbalo in San Francisco, Arbalo Street. And I'm in the house and I'm cooking up a culinary expertise spam sandwich. And I, nobody could cook spam like me. Nobody in the world. That's a fact. Um, and I'm cooking it up and I get a phone call. And I pick up the phone and she says, is this Giovanni? And now nobody has called me Giovanni for the majority of my life, we changed the name back when I was adopted to Kevin Hines. Right. Um, and so, 
So I go, is this Sheikah? That's her name. And she goes, uh, I, said, I said, like Sheikah, my sister? And she goes, how many Sheikahs do you know? You know, and so I was like, oh, my God, I have to meet you right now. And she goes, meet you right now. I don't know you, buddy. I don't, you know, hold on, slow down, slow your roll. I was like, look, I've been looking for you my whole life. My whole life. Let's meet. If, if it goes south, you never have to see me again. And she goes, okay, fine. So we meet at 14th and Uloa on West Portal Avenue, right in front of Starbucks. And I get there like half an hour early. I'm so damn excited. And I'm pacing back and forth in front of the Starbucks like a maniac. And there's these two police officers that are, you know, they have their bikes right outside of Starbucks because all the police officers go to that Starbucks. They're, they're, they're sitting there and they're drinking their Starbucks and they're, uh, and they're leaning on their bikes and they see me like pacing back and forth. And they're like, hey, buddy, are you okay? <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I, I'm going to meet my birth sister for the very first time. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. And like, buddy, we don't want to know your whole life story. We just want to know if you're like a threat. Can you calm down a minute? And I was like, no, I, I'm fine. I just am so excited. They're like, well, we're excited for you, but just calm down, you know? Well, at that moment, Sheikah comes around the corner, the spitting, uncanny resemblance of our birth mom. And I start to cry, and she just opens her arms and bells me and says, I love you. Oh, my God. That's all I wanted. <laughs> all I wanted was to say I love you to my mom. That's all I wanted in the whole world. And it was like it happened right there. It was, it was like all, all those, that, that void in my stomach and the pit of my chest was filled immediately. And then she sits me down and she tells me I have a brother, a brother, and, and, and that all my cousins want to meet me and that we have a whole bunch of family in Jamaica. It was just a beautiful story. And she tells me, she hands me this tin, this, 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 um, it's like a, a cat, it's like a tin with cats on it, the paintings of cats on it. And it was our mom's. And I, and this is where it even gets even wilder. So I opened the tin. And I'm going through old pictures, and, and she was a painter, my mom. And so the pictures of paintings she'd done and galleries she'd been a part of. Um, and then there's this, there's this list of names. And it's a Christmas list. It's like, who are you going to write your Christmas cards to? And a list of those names. And I'm reading the names, and I see a familiar name. I see a name, Fred Kling. I'm like, Fred Kling? That was my college art teacher before I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Why is that name in her list? He was her art teacher. Here's where it even gets more uh, beautiful. Um, I call Fred and I say, did you know a woman named Marcia Silvera? And he said, yes. Yes, I did. I knew her very well. I said, how did you know her? He said, she was in my art 101 class an hour block after you. Oh every, every day in that year, I would miss walking into my mom by minutes. If not, walk by her and not know it was her. Wow. We shared the same argon. We shared the same breath. We shared the same kinetic energy. And at first I was angry because I missed her by an hour or minutes. And then I realized there's something beautiful in that. There's something poetic about it. And I accepted it. 
as that was the closest I ever got to get to my mom. And that's okay. That's okay. You need to tell these stories more often because these stories are of connection, of family, of things that I can feel are so important to you. But also, you know, at the end of the day, like you just seem to be a person who really sees the silver linings and you almost weren't here with us, you know, um, and I do want to share with people your story that led to your suicide attempt and why you're still here with us. Yeah. So let's let's go there. You bet. At 17 and a half years of age, I was diagnosed with bipolar type one with psychotic features. Something I'd be eventually triply diagnosed with over my lifetime. The very same brain disease my birth parents had before me. Genetically predisposed twice, right? And by 19, I couldn't bear the brunt and the weight of my depression any longer. It was too much, too too, too heavy on my shoulders. And I wrote a note. Instead of asking for help from the people who love me more than anything else in this world, I wrote a note and I plan to take my life off the Golden Gate Bridge, that bridge you see behind me. And uh, I'll never forget the ride to the Golden Gate. I sat in the very back row of the bus in the middle seat, looking out upon all who boarded, and I began to cry. Softly, moderately, and then waterfalls flowing from my eyes. Mucus dripping from my nose. And then I began to yell aloud on a crowded bus filled with people. Leave me alone. Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you? I don't want to die. And now 100 people on the bus are looking right at me. But saying nothing. Except for one man. The man to my left says to the fellow next to him while pointing me with his thumb with a smile on his face, what the hell's wrong with that kid? Apathy. Complete and total apathy. Bus gets to the Golden Gate Bridge parking lot. Everybody deboards but me. I'm crying my eyes out. Hoping the driver will see my pain and say something kind and compassionate. Instead, he says, come on, kid, get off the bus. I got to go. I walked right up to him and he motions me to get off the bus. I make my way onto that bridge. I find a particular light rail. I cry my tears to the waters below, begging myself to call anyone and ask for help. And that's when a woman from my left approached me and she had blonde curly hair and these giant sunglasses. And I thought she was going to ask me if I was okay. She was smiling. I thought, this is it. She's going to save me. I don't have to do this today. I put it all in her hands. She can't read minds. What happened next was not her fault. And she goes, excuse me, will you take my picture? I took a picture several times and she walked away. I was devastated. I said to myself, absolutely no one cares. 
which was the furthest thing from the truth. Everybody cared. My brain wasn't allowing me to care. The voice in my head echoed, jump now, and I did. I have auditory hallucinations. They plagued me, and they were plaguing me then. And I listened to them. What I want people who are listening to this conversation to gather, to understand, to comprehend, those people that are or have been suicidal, is that your suicidal thoughts don't have to become your actions. Hell, if all of our thoughts became our actions, how many of us would be in jail for road rage right now, you know? Our thoughts don't have to own, rule, or define what we do next. They can simply be our thoughts. After I did what I did and survived, I learned, obviously, the hard way that I never had to attempt again, no matter how suicidal I would become. And I live with chronic thoughts of suicide, but they, they played me, but they never kill me. I'll never die with my hands because I know my true value. And I know how to be resilient in the face of pain. And I know how to hold gratitude inside pain. And gratitude and resilience are the two most protective factors from suicide. I fell that day 250 feet, 25 stories, closing in on terminal velocity, hit that water like a ton of bricks, went down 70 feet, opened my eyes, and I was drowning. But all I wanted to do was live. I got closer and closer to the lit circle of water above me. I thought I'm not going to make it. I started to convulse. I started to run out of air. I said, Kevin, you can't die here. You die here, no one's going to ever know you didn't want to. No one's going to ever know you knew you made a mistake. I broke the surface of the water. I bobbed up and down in it. And I did the one thing I've had control over since kindergarten. I prayed. God, please save me. I don't want to die. God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake. On repeat, and he heard me. A woman driving by in a red car, something over the rail, called her friend of the Coast Guard. Singular reason the Coast Guard boat arrived to my position within less than the time I would sit in hypothermia and drown was because of that phone call. Before the Coast Guard arrived, I was going, I was drowning. I couldn't stay above water. I kept going down. That's when something began to circle beneath me. It's very large and very slimy and very, very alive. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I didn't die jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and a shark is going to eat me. Perfect. Was no shark. It was, in fact, a sea lion. And the people above looking down believed it to be keeping my body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. Anyone can call that what they want, but that's my personal miracle. I'll always have faith and I'll always believe. <clears throat> Sometimes I feel like so many things have to go wrong in order to go right. I know, I don't know if that even makes sense. Maybe it's the reverse. But when you jumped, you knew this isn't what I wanted. This is a mistake. I don't want to die. And then this chain of events happened to keep you here with us. Yeah. Uh, um, and you, your body was damaged. Oh yeah. 
I shattered my T12, L1, L2 lower vertebrae, and I missed severing my spinal cord by two millimeters. And they were able to, you know, fix you to an extent? Uh, they, they fitted me with a titanium mesh cage, a metal plate the size of my palm, and four pins the size of my index fingers. That's the reason I get to stand, walk, and run. Of the of the so so here's a little bit of a math for you. Um, 99% of the people that have leapt off the Golden Gate Bridge never again get to tell their stories. They're gone forever. Of those who remain, it's about I think it's anywhere between 25 and 35 people that lived. Five of us get the privilege to stand, walk, and run. They call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world. There's a book on it by Ben Sherwood. Yeah, we, we, uh, we, we get to be here. And I believe getting to be here is a privilege and a gift no matter the pain I'm in. You know, when you were a baby, you shared your story about your brother and you, and you said, I got to live. That is a repeating <laughs> trend in your life. And I love that mantra. I love it for all of us. I get to live. Yeah. Look, look, pain is universal. It's universal. Pain is inevitable. It's coming for all of us who hasn't already. Suffering is optional. It's a choice. People judge me when I say that. Hear me out. Every clinician I ever had told me I was suffering from bipolar disorder, suffering from mental illness, suffering from depression, suffering from an eating disorder when I was, and I was in high school wrestling. I was living with anorexia and bulimia, and I was lying to myself about it. And I, I dealt with it later on in life as well when I would overexercise. And they said I was suffering, 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 suffering. I adopted that narrative as my own, that very limiting narrative as my own, and made myself a sufferer. But that only made me the victim of my own story. When I recognized I could fight the pain, live with the pain, battle the pain, and thrive despite of the pain, that made me the hero of my own story. And even though I was born in pain, in and out of crack motels, I've never suffered a day in my life. No, I've been given a second, third, and fourth chance at it. Let me tell you something about pain. Two and a half years ago, I developed secondary burns from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head without a fire. Bloody blisters everywhere. Feeling like knives and needles were coming from my bones through my skin from top to bottom of my body. For 38 weeks, 24 hours a day. One of my meds had poisoned my organs. I was in the most physical pain I've ever experienced in my life. I never wanted to die when I went to the Golden Gate Bridge. I believed I had to, two categorically different things. But when I was in this physical pain two and a half years ago, when it felt like knives and needles were coming from my bones through my skin everywhere for 38 weeks, I wanted to die every waking moment of every day. I wanted to end it. Did I? No. I fought the pain, in spite of the pain, despite of the pain, and here I thrive today. You have become a master of mindset. 
You know, you are, you mentioned earlier, you still live with suicidal thoughts. It, it occupies a part of your brain at times, yet you don't act on it. And all of the resources that you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, in so many of them, you share things that can help other people. Um, the, I listened to just maybe one of your very first podcasts, and the, this does not have to be complicated. You pointed out four things. Maybe you can share with people a little bit of that mindset madness, for lack of a better word, (laughs) those mindset, you know, tricks. Absolutely. So let me just preset, preface this with, I have, I was in denial of my disease for years. I have hazardly took medication and then wouldn't take it one day, would take it the next, would take it seven days, not for seven days, you know. Um, I would go out drinking while on meds. Like, I, I, it, 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 I was a mess. And then I met the love of my life, Margaret Hines. And she changed everything. I knew I loved her before she knew she loved me. For me, it was love at first sight. Okay. You got to share your, your love at first sight story. How did you okay. meet Margaret? So, so I meet Margaret in my third psych ward stay where I'm, where I'm totally in denial, totally feeling like nothing's going to ever change. This be the rest of my life. You know, psych wards forever. And that psych ward and two, two things happen. My uncle George comes to see me and he's my favorite uncle on my mom's side. And he says, he says, Kevin, your family can help you into a blue in the face. But until and when you take 100% responsibility for the fact that you have this disease, kid, ain't nothing going to change. You'll be out of these places forever. Is that what you want? I said, no, but George said, well, get it together, kid. We're counting on you. And he drops a Time Magazine article on the table, How to Fight Bipolar Disorder, Depression, and Mental Illness with Routine and Regimen and Win, 2004. I read the article through and through. And I'm saying, you, you mean I can build a routine where I can feel better most days? <laughs> Why didn't my first three psychiatrists tell me this? You know? So, so I go, okay. I start putting this plan in action. I start building my mental health regimen. I, I, re- I wrote it for myself. That's what the art of wellness is. It's a, it's a written out, pl- science-backed, evidence-informed, proven tools to benefit brain health. And mental well-being. Common sense tools, simple things you can do every day that will ch- change your life. I, well, let's just go with the first of the, th- the three E's. Education, educating yourself about your diagnosis so you can defeat it, knowing every tool, trick, and tip, and, and, and piece of a routine you can put together to balance your mental health. Um, exercise. If you're physically capable, getting to the ground and getting to work in any exercise that you like to do, if you've been approved by a doctor, eating healthy foods, eating uh, non-inflammatory foods versus inflammatory foods. There are two types of foods, those two types. If you eat inflammatory foods, you're going to get sick. Your brain's going to function properly. If you eat non-inflammatory foods, you're going to feel better and your mental health is going to be much more uh, in sync. Your gut biomes are controlled. Your serotonin is controlled by your gut. If you're eating poorly, you're damaging your brain, period. So I learn all these things and I start to put things into action in this two-month psych ward stay. Well, one day this kid rolls in on a gurney 
he's catatonic and he can't move and he can't talk, uh, drugs, right? And so he comes in and here's the problem. They would wheel him into breakfast, lunch, and dinner in a wheelchair. And he couldn't move and he couldn't talk. Um, and obviously he couldn't eat. But they'd bring him his tray full and an hour later they would take it away full and it broke my heart. And nobody was trying to help this kid. If you weren't actively helping yourself, you weren't being helped in that war. You were just a, a number on the sheet. So I would go and I would tell him stories, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I just talked to him. I'm trying to elicit a response. And finally, two weeks in, one day, he, he finally, after no movement and no talking, he goes like this. Jeez, man, you talk too much. <laughs> Leave me the hell alone. I know your whole life story. I'm over it. God, get away from me. But I, I got him to get out of his catatonia. It was epic. And, and, and he, the kid, the thing about this kid was special was that 15 to 22 people would come to see him every day. Nobody comes to see you at a psych ward. This kid had an entourage times two. You could only come in two at a time. They would, they would take, they would come in two at a time and they would run out of time to come in in the two hours of uh, visiting hours. And one day, I had, I had finagled my way into volunteering for the psych ward I was staying in. Everybody in there that's a patient is wearing hospital gowns, hospital pants, hospital slippers with the grips on the bottom, not me. I'm wearing a pink polo shirt, khaki cargo shorts, and sandals around the giveaway clothes closet that fit me to a T. And uh, I have a clipboard in my hand that looks very official and a pen. The only thing on the clipboard is a sketch that I still have of Leonardo the Ninja Turtle. <laughs> you know, um, it's a pretty darn, it's a pretty wonderful sketch of Leonardo, actually. I should turn it in. <laughs> we'll have to uh, post it. Submit it somewhere. But anyway, uh, so, so uh, I get a tap on my left shoulder as I'm making the afternoon visiting hour announcements on the PA system, because that was the job I gave myself, right? I'm rhyming the announcements, <laughs> you know. I had to tap my left shoulder and I turn around and there she was. Her eyes were almond brown, sexy and cool. And I was done. And I knew she'd be the rest of my life. I just knew I couldn't tell her that because that would be really weird and awkward. And she goes, excuse me, do you work here in front of the entire nursing staff? They were all there. And they're looking at me like, what is this jackass going to say? And I'm looking at them like, you better be quiet or we'll talk about this volunteer job that I'm legally handling right now. You know, and I said, Madam, as a matter of fact, I'm a volunteer. And she goes, good, I'm looking for my cousin. His name is, do you know what room he's in? I said, right this way. And I took, I put my hand on the small of her back and her elbow and I glided her there, which she said was later very creepy. And then I get into the room, I get into the room and the kid sees me and he hates me. I talk too much. So I duck out into the hallway and I hear her say, your nursing staff is so nice. And he goes, that guy? That guy's a nutball. That guy jumps off bridges. Don't talk to that guy. And she comes out of the hallway. And she goes, why'd you lie to me? I said, Margaret, I didn't lie to you. I'm a volunteer at this very hospital. I just happen to also live here. <laughs> and uh, oh, God. yeah, well, the kid gets out of the hospital first. I get out after I go and I spend Thanksgiving with Margaret's family. I haven't told her how I feel. And one day in the halfway home, I go, I'm going to ask her out. 
And I call her phone and I said, hi, Margaret. It's been a while since I've been over. I said, Margaret, yeah, hello. Uh, it's Kevin. Kevin? Kevin Hines? Um, from the psych ward? Oh, Kevin, hi, how are you? How did you get this phone number? Well, that's not important. Let's move on. Um, Margaret, I'd like to take you to dinner. It's Friday. And she goes, oh, uh, I don't know. And I was like, oh, come on. If it goes south, you never have to see me again. My, that's your line. My line. And she goes, oh, okay. All right. So I show up at her apartment. I made a huge mistake. I showed up at her apartment with a giant ski duffel bag of all of my things. He goes, what the hell is that? I said, Mar, it's a funny story. We leave the halfway home on, on Friday. It's, it's Friday. And you go out past 9 p.m. You made reservations at 9. You can't go home until Monday. And she goes, oh, hell no. <laughs> I said, Margaret, after dinner, I will take this bag. I will lay on those Lombardi steps. And I'll lay there all night long in the rain if I have to. But we have to go on this date. I came all this way. And she goes, oh, God, fine. So we get to the restaurant. Cafe Sport in San Francisco. You don't order at Cafe Sport. They look at you. They kind of judge you. And they order for you. You best not have allergies. Well, the date was an absolute debacle. I had on my only good white shirt. I got marinara sauce all over it. I, I, <laughs> I got lemon juice in her eyes. Oh my god! Mascara is running down her face. I tipped, I tipped a plate of boiling butter, and the boiling butter went between her blouse, under her chest, and burn her, and she screamed bloody murder, and the whole restaurant stopped cold. It was a nightmare. The woman to our left was like, Matt, are you okay? Do we need to call someone? I'm like, hey, Smoker 67, it's a date. It's going south. You're not helping. Thank you. It was a mess. And I'm thinking, this is it. It's over. At one point, she just goes, check, please. And we're out of there. We, <laughs> we didn't even eat our food. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is it. We're never going to get married. We're never going to have kids. We're never going to have the dog named Max I want. It's all over. I had the whole plan. And... She, we get to the apartment and she goes, Kevin, we're going to the roof. And I literally said, are you going to throw me off? She goes, no, I'm not going to throw you off. We get to the roof. There's two yoga mats and a, and a, and a, a box garden. And we're up there. And the moon is bright. It's beautiful. October night in San Francisco wasn't too cold. And she says, so tell me your story. I tell her my story. She was asleep in five minutes. <laughs> she slept in the dewy cool air that night on the roof of her apartment we woke up really early in the in the as the sun came up she gave me a second date and we have been married for 15 years and together together for 17 she's the love of my life and my very best friend and she is my reason for reasons and she's the greatest gift i've ever received and she is the single reason why i'm alive today she saved my life more times than I can count on all my appendages. Kevin, we, I know we've got to wrap it. You have so many more people to, to help in this amazing lifetime that you get to live. Um, I want to say love saved you. I love that. <laughs> it's fitting. 
Valentine's ish. I believe that connections with other people, the thing that you had been seeking since you were a tiny little boy are a huge part of what I've heard, you know, that have allowed you to get to each new stage of your life. Those connections are important. When you were on the bus on the way to the bridge and you said, no one cares, no one cares. And you stopped and said, everyone cares. I want to remind people listening right now that everyone cares. Damn. Um, Can I just give a few more resources to folks so they can have some really good stuff to walk home with? Absolutely. And, And when you're done with that, I want you to leave our listeners with one final piece of advice. You bet. You bet. So, okay. A couple of things. If you're in America and you happen to be suicidal, you know someone who is, text CNQR to 741-741. CNQR to 741-741, the crisis text line. Um, That CONQUER keyword stands for Congress, stands for courage to talk about your mental health. N stands for normalizing the conversation. Q stands for ask the questions. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? And do you have the means? They don't put the thought in someone's mind. They give them permission to speak on their pain. A pain shares a pain have. R is for recovery, living proof. Uh, to 741741. Or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 1-800-273-8255 plus one for military. 1-800-273-8255. Soon to turn into 988. Um, so pay attention to that shift um, when it comes. Um, if you are struggling with anxiety or panic, uh, or simply struggling with mental issues, uh, three of the best web apps you can get are Headspace, the Calm app, and the Not Okay app. Headspace, the Calm app, and the Not Okay app. Obviously, Headspace and the Calm focus on mindfulness meditation, and the Calm app and the Not Okay app focuses on uh, you pressing one red button when you're not okay mentally and five of your personal peer protectors or loved ones being alerted to your geolocation, getting to you right away. And if emergency services are needed, you can press that button as well, just to make sure you're physically safe from your, for yourself. So it's about taking responsibility and being aware uh, when you're doing well, how to, how, to, how to balance yourself when you're not doing well. And that not okay app is being used by over a million people. Um, next Kevin, that, yeah. one other thing. Yeah. Um, there are quite a few young kids, same age you were, um, who are struggling right now, even more than ever, specifically because of the pandemic. Um, what can their parents do to help f- to know if they are seeking, I don't know, uh, if they're having suicidal thoughts or, or researching things or whatever? What can their parents do? So a couple of things. If you go to kevinhindstory.com slash resources, there are three resources for parents right now. One is the art of wellness, which you can teach to your kids and teach to your family and teach to your friends. It's a PowerPoint version. You can download it and we'll get that to you and help, help you with that. Number two is a parent's guide to teen suicide prevention, which is written by some of the greatest minds in suicidology in the field. And my lovely wife, Margaret, that is one of the most heavily downloaded in the field. Take it. It's yours. That one's really beneficial to people and uh, parents and who are worried about their kids and mental pain. And then three is a guide to the YouTube channel and what YouTube videos help what mental health crisis. All those three things are yours. All of them are free. Take them, please. I beg you. Uh, go to the Hindsights podcast, H-I-N-E-S-I-G-H-T-S podcast. Um, it is filled to the brim. We've got over 54 episodes, all designed to better your brain health. Um, 
And then uh, obviously I said the YouTube channel and then the website, kevinheinstore.com. If you're looking to book someone for your school, college, you, you know, uh, group, organization, company, uh, I'm available. And, and, and that's just kevinheinstore.com and submit to the email form. Um, and we can set that up. Uh, we my wife and I travel all over the world, sharing stories of hope, healing and recovery. They're very effective. Uh, we've done a study as a matter of fact, a quantitative and qualitative study onto the way I tell my story and how science backed and evidence informed it is, uh, and how it actually does save lives. So, um, that has been done. You can request that white paper. It's fantastic. Amazing. All right. Well, let's wrap it then with one final nugget that you have to share with our audience, something that will help them save their lives or make their lives better. Okay. Okay. My friends, if you're in suicide crisis right now and you're listening, take a breath in, in fourth, the nose, hold four, release six to eight seconds, like pursed lips, like a whistle, but no sound. Do that 20 more times. Stop yourself from what you're doing. Consider this. We're all going to pass away someday. None of us are immortal. Give yourself time plus hard work to find hope for things to change. Just because you're in a world of pain today doesn't mean you don't get to have that beautiful tomorrow. But my friends, you have to be here to get there in the first place. Fight to be here tomorrow and every day after that. You are valued. You are loved. You are worthy and you matter to us. If nobody else says it today, we love you and we want you to stay. Thank you, Kevin. You matter. Thank you very much. I want to do a screenshot real quick so I can capture this moment. If you don't yeah, mind. me too. Hold on. Okay, I'm ready. One, two, three. <laughs> Got it. Will you send me that? I will, absolutely. Awesome. Um, I would have gone on forever and ever, but I wanted to be respectful for you because we went a thank bit you. over. So thank you. I am going to have this up in like a month. I will send you all the info um, to whoever emailed me. Is that your wife? Maybe. My wife, Margaret. Yeah. Okay. Margaret. Oh, good. I want to meet her. God. Amazing. I like fell in love with her through your story. Honestly, oh, yeah. those personal stories about family and connection like that's what you need. And you're finding it like you're making that happen for yourself. More people need to know you. I'm glad you came through Steamboat that uh, last year or else I wouldn't have even recognized who you were. So I so appreciate you doing this big work. It's meaningful and it's heavy and you got to work hard to protect yourself because I know a lot of people are probably throwing down their energy to you, but man, it's important. So thank you. Thank you. Nice talking to you. You too. You are awesome. Have a beautiful day. Beautiful day. Take care. When someone dies by suicide, it is common for the survivors to erase that part of their journey and not talk about how their loved one died. When this happens, it perpetuates the stigma around suicide, which makes it harder for people to reach out when they need help. Steve Tarpinian died by suicide in 2015, but he also left a beautiful legacy of love and support to many people. By sharing his story and talking openly about suicide, it is our goal to help people who are struggling reach out for the help they need before it is too late. 
and by offering a glimpse into the perspectives of those who are touched by suicide, we hope to help those who are struggling with suicide or are suicide loss survivors. Please remember, you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast. You never know who might need to hear it right now.